Let's open our Bibles to the book of Romans, please, chapter 10. And we talk down through verse 3. We'll pick up with the fourth verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Now then, we have just been reading previously that the Jews had sought to establish their own righteousness and had not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. And in verse 5, it says, For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Evidently, the Jews had tried to live by the righteousness of the law. In other words, to be saved by their works, by their keeping of the commandments, by their strict adherence to the law. But Paul tells us in verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The Jews had not submitted to the righteousness of God, and they had not seen the fact that Jesus Christ had fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law for them and for you and I as well, for both Jews and Gentiles. And that's what it means when it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It means that He has fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law and that if we believe in Him and trust in Him, therefore we have kept the law. Not word by word and letter by letter and not of our works, but through our faith in Him and He as our substitute and the one that has acted in our place and therefore, since he kept the righteousness of the law, we are in him and we have kept it. And that's why it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to, uh, for everyone, to everyone that believeth. So it's faith that we need, isn't it? It's not works. It's not trying to, to live by the law itself and not trying to keep those commandments. This would be a burden to us. This would be something that we, were, we are unable to do and no one is able to do, even the Jews. Jesus said that they had received the law and none of them had kept it. Stephen uh, preached to the Jews and he said that they had received the law by the disposition of angels and none of them had kept it. And for those very things uh, that he said, Stephen said, well, they stoned him to death because they... Uh, rejected his the truth that he was bringing to them. Now then, in verse 5, let's look at it again. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. In other words, he would have to keep the law completely to establish himself as righteous. But even if he tries to live by the righteousness of the law, he would come short because the Bible says... Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So they would still be under the curse because of their failure to live up to the righteous standards of the law. Now then, in contrast to that law, in verse 6 it says, But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep, that is, to bring, Christ, bring up Christ again from the dead? 
But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So Paul is saying here, uh, and he's taking this saying from the book of Deuteronomy in relation to the law and moving it over to the gospel and applying the gospel uh, on the basis of what he finds written in the law. Let's, and contrasting it. Let's uh, look back in the book of Deuteronomy, if you will, chapter 30, chapter 30, beginning with verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. It says, For this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither it is, is it afar off. It's not a long ways off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up to heaven for us? Moses is saying that this law that God has given, it's not up in heaven. You don't have to go into heaven for it and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. You don't have to bring it down from heaven that we can hear. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. In other words, it was very near to them. And he had brought it so near to them that they knew it. It was even in their mouth and in their heart. See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. And he goes on to say that they had to live by the law in order to have its blessings upon them. And so he brings that over. If you turn back to the 10th chapter of Romans, he brings it over. If that was true that the law was so near to them... How much more is it true of the gospel? And so that's what he's doing. He's saying, if the law was that near, if God gave the commandments to Moses, and Moses uh, gave the law to the children of Israel, and it was so near to them that they didn't have to go to heaven for it or go across the sea for it, but it was so near that it was in their mouth and in their heart to either obey it or disregard it or disobey it, then, he says, how much more then is the true gospel of the Lord? Look in verse 6, uh, Romans 10, 6. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. And he uses the parallel of what we find that Moses says in the law. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? In other words, you don't have to go up to heaven and bring Christ down from above because he uh, has given us his righteousness by faith. You don't have to bring him down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up... Uh, Christ again from the dead. He's not still dead, and you don't have to go into the deep and bring him up again from the dead. But what saith it? The, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Now let's stop there again a moment. In other words, we don't have to go uh, to heaven to bring Christ to us. We don't have to go to his death and, and bring him back from the dead because Jesus has already been crucified he was already, he's been buried in Joseph's new tomb. He was raised again the third day. He appeared to the disciples. He gave the great commission of his message of salvation to a lost and sinful world. And after so many days, he ascended to glory and on the right hand of God. And he's done all of these things, and we don't have to do any of them. The righteousness which is of God and the word of faith which we preach is to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's an ever-living proof on high that all of it is accomplished and we, we have it near unto us. It's nigh thee. It's nigh thee. That's what Paul is saying. 
that it's even nearer to us than the law was to Israel. Because all of it's done, we don't have to accomplish any of it. We don't have to go there uh, and bring Christ up again from the dead. We don't, do not have to ascend into heaven and try to bring him down to the earth in order to have this word of faith near us. But what is it? It's found in the gospel. And this is the word of faith that we preach, and it's in verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's read on down, down to verse 10 and 11. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now what's he saying here? That the word of faith that Paul says we preach is very near. It's confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a heart belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, and in order to believe what the Scripture says here, that God hath raised him from the dead, you're acknowledging already that he was buried, crucified for your sins and buried and rose again from the dead. You believe and accept the fact that he was crucified. Someone might say, well, it leaves out his death here, that Christ died for our sins. This is all-inclusive in the word Believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. We wouldn't have any reason to believe that God had raised him from the dead if we didn't believe that he was delivered for offenses. And the Bible comes about and connects them both so closely together. It says he was delivered for offenses and raised again for our justification. The last verse in the fourth chapter. Who was delivered for offenses and was raised again for our justification. So what is that word of faith? It's faith in the gospel. It's faith in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And it's a heart faith. It's trusting Him with your heart and with your soul. It's believing that He took your place, that He's your substitute, that He's your sin bearer. And when you confess Him as your own personal Savior, you have God's righteousness imputed unto you. Christ's righteousness imputed unto you. And that's the simple message of the gospel. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The word ashamed means confused or confounded or disappointed. If you believe on him, you're not going to be put to shame or disappointment or be confounded. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. There's no difference as far as the Jew being a sinner and the Greek or the Gentile being a sinner. There's no difference as far as the uh, provision for their salvation. Jesus Christ is the same Lord and he's over all and rich unto all, both Jews and Gentiles, that will call upon him. For whosoever, look at that, Jew or Gentile, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when it says, call upon the name of the Lord, it not only means to invoke his name in prayer, but it means to trust him with your heart, believe on him with your heart, to confess him with your mouth, and to trust him as your own personal Savior. In other words, to receive Christ. It's all included in this thought. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You rest upon his name. You not only call upon his name verbally, or you call upon his name inwardly, 
and you believe upon his name from the heart, but you actually rest upon his name for your soul's salvation. The Bible says, believe on, look at this now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What is it to believe? It's to, to throw yourself upon him, to trust in him, and to rest upon him. Just as if you were a drowning man out in the ocean and there was a piece of timber and you grab that piece of timber and throw all your weight upon it and cling to that for your very life's sake so that you would not drown and you hold on to it with for dear life. That's what we do with Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save us and when we thrust ourselves upon Him and we cling to Him, He's our Savior. He's the only one that will bear us up in the waters that would uh, completely destroy us, or death that would destroy us. That's the best, one of the best ways I know how to put it. There may be many other thousands and thousands of ways to illustrate it, but you're depending upon Him completely. If you, as a child of God tonight, if you, need, if you want the assurance that, that uh, you need tonight in your heart of your own salvation, you ask yourself this question, who am I trusting in or how am I trusting in Christ? Am I trusting Him completely as my one and only Savior and hope of salvation? Am I clinging to Him as a dying man would or a drowning man to that timber in the ocean? If you are, that answers the question. You're trusting in Him alone. It's not in anything you can do, but it's in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you're trusting in Jesus alone, that answers the question. In what he's done for you on the cross. Paul says that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. Is that the way you want to be found in him? That's the only way. I don't want to be found before God trying to stand in my own righteousness. It would be like the fig leaves of Adam and Eve, wouldn't it? I don't want to be found trying to... Trying to uh, obtain my righteousness by the works of the law because the law has already said and the Bible has already stated cursed is every one that continues not in all things were written, which were written in the book of the law to do them and I'm going to be found guilty in that respect. But if I am found in Christ not having my own righteousness but that which is by the faith of Jesus Christ the righteousness of God by faith then I can stand because it's not me standing there it's Christ's righteousness by which I am clothed that I stand before a holy God. And that will you will be able to stand. If you look in the book of Revelation, let me give you, if you look in the sixth chapter quickly, the book of Revelation, let me show you. <clears throat> Let's read in the last three verses. And the kings of the earth, verse 15, 16, 17, <clears throat> the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now look at verse 17. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand. Now look over in the 7th chapter, verse 9. After this I, I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Who is it that stood? Clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Who is it that stood? 
They were clothed with white robes. The white robes is typical of the righteousness of the saints. Speaks of the righteousness of the saints. What is the righteousness of the saints? It's the righteousness that we have that Christ has given to us. Christ's imputed righteousness. Now then, you say, well, we have righteousness that we uh, live and do in life. The only reason we have that is the outgrowth and the outgiving of that life of Christ within us. But this does not vindicate us before God. This does not help us to stand before Him holy and cleansed because we have too much, many imperfections as well, don't we? But we have Christ's perfect righteousness as far as being able to stand before God. All right, back in Romans chapter 10 quickly. Let's look at this. It says in verse uh, 14 now, How then shall they hear... Are they called on him in whom they have not believed? If it's true that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, how are they going to call on him if they have not? How are they going to rest upon him? How are they going to trust him? How are they going, how are they going to be saved if, if they have not believed? And how uh, shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You see, it takes the message of salvation in order for a person to have faith and faith in Christ in order for them to rest upon Christ. So one thing depends upon another. And he states it in the reverse here. First, they hear the preaching of the Word, they believe on Christ, and they trust Him with their souls. You come from the bottom back up to the top of the verse. Now then, it says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? You know, sometimes we forget that. We forget that part of it. I've heard people say, well, the devil could hang a sign on his back, Jesus saves, and people would get converted. I don't believe that at all. I believe you have to be brought to the knowledge of salvation, to know something about Jesus. Not just Jesus saves. Well, how does he save? How does Jesus save? What would that mean to a person? If you just hung a sign on the devil's back and he's walking down the street and you say, well, he says Jesus saves, so Jesus saves, what are you going to believe about Jesus? How is he going to save you? He's going to save you when you know that, that you're a sinner and that He died for your sins and that He took your place on the cross and you're brought to a knowledge of the fact that you're a sinner and He is the one and only hope of your salvation. You need to mo- know more than that to know that you're going to be saved or to bring you, bring you to salvation. Of course, a lot of people differ with me on that. But anyway, that's their privilege. But if you look in the Bible, it says, How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. What does it mean, how beautiful are the feet of them? It means they're rushing in and bringing in very uh, zealously and very confidently the good tidings of salvation. Just as the runners of the Old Testament, let me give you this. If you'll turn, they'll give you two passages of Scripture. You find one in Isaiah 52, verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. You see, when Israel was in battle in the Old Testament, that's Isaiah 52, verse 7, when they were... Uh, at war with their enemies, and the messenger would come. If he was coming along running and his feet were just really flying, 
And you could see them possibly even in the night, maybe the moonlight shining upon the mountains, or even in the daytime, whether or not it was night or day. But if he was coming with a, a zealous step, and if he was really running with, those, with that good news, he would be really making tracks to get there to bring you good tidings, wouldn't he? Suppose the war was going against them. I don't imagine he would come quite as much running along the way. He'd say, I have bad news, and he would come despondent, and he would be slow to bring the message if it was a message of bad news. But look, now, write the contrary. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now, of course, we see here not only the application to Israel of old, but we see of what it is to bring the good tidings of Christ's redemption, His free redemption. I'll give you another scripture. You find it in the book of uh, Nahum, uh, chapter let's see, chapter one, verse fifteen. It says, "Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, O Judah." Keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So that, behold, it says, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. And that's what we're trying to bring about. Now, if the preacher is classified as such. And how shall they preach, back in Romans 10, verse 15, and how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. If there's good news coming, then we come. In, uh, we come in a hurry. We come with a message of salvation that's ready for those that will believe it. It says in verse 16 now, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. How true that is. For he saith, saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? You remember back in Isaiah 53, he says, Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It begins. There are many that do not believe that report. What is that report? That is that publishing of the gospel. Who believed it in Isaiah's day? Who believes it now? Many do not. So then... Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So one thing builds upon another. We're to uh, call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. We're to believe on him with our heart, it says in verse 14. Just sketch back in your uh, mind and in your, uh, with your eyes and look upon those scriptures that we've read before as we teach this. And it will bring them all together. In verse 14, you must call upon the name of the Lord, believe on him. You can't believe on him if you haven't heard of him. You can't hear of him unless there be a preacher. And they can't preach unless they're sent. And what is the message that they're sent with? It's a message of good tidings of peace, the gospel of peace, verse 15. And it's glad tidings of good things. And so then, if we're going to believe, faith comes, that faith or belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it's the word that has to be preached. It's the word that has to be published. It's the gospel that has to be preached. Now, verse 18, <clears throat> But I say, Have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth, and they, their words unto the ends of the world. If you 
even go back to Isaiah's time, the time of the prophets, the sound or the message of God's word went everywhere through the prophets. Israel knew that message. And you know, it, it goes everywhere into the world today, with some exceptions, but there will be a day that the Bible predicts that this message shall be preached into all the world for witness. And in a complete sense of the word, in the great tribulation, it will reach to the ends of the world. Some people think it has today, but I don't believe it has. I think there's still many people that have never heard the gospel, multitudes and multitudes that have never heard the gospel. But it says in verse uh, 19, But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nations, nation I will anger you. Now he's saying that uh, Moses is predicting that God will provoke Israel to jealousy by the Gentiles, by those that are not a people, those that don't belong to him, and even by a foolish nation. He says, I will anger you. It was to provoke them to really believe on the Lord. But his eyes is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. It's showing us how Israel was uh, rejecting even in the days of the prophets, the word of the Lord. Now then, that brings us to something we find in the 11th chapter. I say then, hath God cast away his people? What's he talking about his people? He's talking about Israel here. His earthly chosen people. God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What ye not what the Scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying? Let's stop there just for a moment. Paul is showing us here in this 11th chapter that there is a remnant of spiritual Israel. When he says, has God cast away his people, we know that Jesus even predicted in his day, he says the gospel will be taken away from you and given to a nation bearing fruit. He talked about Israel not uh, bearing the fruit that they should have. He talked about that nation being set aside as they would be. And Paul is speaking of the same thing. But it doesn't mean that God has cast away his people completely because there's a remnant that would be saved. And Paul used himself as an example of salvation of that remnant in verse 1. He says if God has cast Israel away, then uh, I'm certainly not cast away, so there's a remnant. Even I'm an example of that. Look at verse 1 again. For I am also, I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, if God has cast away his people, then how is it that I am saved? Then he says in verse 2, He has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So he's saying there that uh, there's a remnant. There's a few that are saved. In the next few verses, he shows how that the 7,000 people or men in Elijah's time also show us an example of that remnant of the Jews that would be saved. Look at verses 3 on down through verse 6. Let's read it. It says, Lord, uh, well, we have to connect verse 2. It says in the last part of verse 2, What ye not, 
what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Old Elijah was saying, I'm the only true believer left. I'm the only fundamental, independent, Bible-believing person yet on the face of the earth. I only am left. They tore down your altars, they killed your prophets, and I'm the only one that's left. But what saith the answer of God unto him? What did God answer to Elijah? He says, I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. says, Elijah, you're not in this boat alone. You know, Elijah was feeling real sorry for himself. You and I get that disease sometimes. You think, boy, I'm the only one that's got any troubles. Remember old Jezebel? He had just had a great victory on Mount Carmel, and he'd called fire down from heaven, and uh, God had vindicated that Elijah was his prophet, and he says, Elijah, I'm going to prove it to you, and he sent the fire down to devour the sacrifice, whereas the prophets of Baal had cried from morning till noon, couldn't get anything done. And Elijah put things in order, and he fixed the sacrifice, and he poured all the water in time of famine in the trench roundabout and saturated the sacrifice with water just to prove that if God answered by fire, certainly it was uh, God answering by fire. God answered by fire and consumed the sacrifice, accepted the offering, proved that Elijah was his prophet. The prophets of Baal were slain. And then that old wicked woman Jezebel rises up and she says, Elijah, I'm going to get after your hide. And he runs away and hides under a juniper tree. And he sits down and he says, Lord, I'm the only fellow left in the world. And he says, it'd be better if I died than to live. We get that disease, don't we? I'm the only one. When trouble comes, we want to run off and hide. You can't hide. Fortunately, God was merciful and gracious, and he sent an angel to strengthen Elijah and to give him food and etc. and prepare him for, for the worst, but he was really trying to strengthen him and prepare him for the best. And when Elijah was complaining in that same chapter of Scripture where he was making his great complaint that he was the only one left, God says, now listen here, Elijah, I have yet 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, you're not in this thing alone. I still have some Christian people round about. And when we think we're the only one, let's not get that disease. Because the Lord is with us, but he's with many others. But there are many that have to be true to his word and true to uh, him and have not bowed. He wasn't talking about those that were mere professors. He was talking about genuine, real uh, Israelites that were faithful to him and were not idol worshippers. He says, they have not bowed me to the image of Baal. And that's the kind of people we're talking about. And he says, Paul takes his example of himself and the example of those 7,000 men in Elijah's time that there was a remnant at the present time. Look in verse 5. Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul is saying that in that day, even though that some may have thought that God had cast away his people, verse 1. He said in verse 2, he had not cast away his people which he foreknew, because there's a remnant. And he's saying the proof of that, the fact is this, that not only myself, who am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, but 
Those 7,000 men of Elijah's time prove that even so at this present time there is a remnant, verse 5, according to the election of grace. God has not cast away his people. And even though in that day the Jewish nation was actually being set aside and the gospel opened to the Gentiles, God still had a remnant that he had foreknown. But they were cast away nationally. They were, as a, na as a nation and as a people, cast off. Let's go on and we'll get to that in a moment in this chapter. Let's notice verse 6. And if by grace, if this is election according to grace and by grace, if it's by grace, then it is no more of works. These are saved by grace through faith, and they're not saved by keeping the law. They're not saved by the works of the law. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. In other words, Paul is saying it's got to be one or the other. If the Jews are saved by grace through faith, and if there's a remnant saved according to the election of grace, then they're certainly not saved by their works and their keeping of the law. And he says, it's got to be one or the other, and which will it be? He says, it's by grace. In verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. That's true. A multitude of Israel were blinded. But the election had obtained it. But they didn't obtain it by works. They had obtained it by grace. And even we Gentiles have not obtained it by works. We have received it by grace and through uh, faith. So in verse 8, it says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And that's true. If you'll look back, let me give you a couple of verses of Scripture. I believe it's Isaiah 29, verse 10. I'll turn quickly to it, and if you don't have time to, to turn, well, just listen to it very carefully. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. He's put them in a deep sleep, and he's closed their eyes. Another verse of Scripture is, uh, the, is Psalm 69, verse 23. Let me read it. 69:23 says, Let their eyes be darkened, that they see not. So Israel was partially blinded. In verse 7, it says, And the rest were blinded. Now in verse 9, back in chapter 11, verse 9, and I'm carrying you a little fast, I realize that, but in Romans 11, verse 9, it says, And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, isn't that what the psalmist said? That they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. It's through their fall that the salvation has come to the Gentiles. Through the fall of Israel, through the fall of the Jews. God has said he's taken away nationally now, nationally, the blessings from Israel, and he's opened up the blessings nationally, or we might say universally, because the rest of the world is populated with Gentiles, he's opened up to the rest of the world salvation. And it's for a purpose, not only for the fact that the Gentiles could be saved, but it it's in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy, that he might provoke them to see what they were losing, that they might become jealous of the fact again that they were 
being set aside and the Gentiles, and they would call them heathen, were being accepted. Now in verse 12, it says, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the riches of the, the Gentiles, how much more they're full. What does it mean? When they're, fin- when they're finally provoked to jealousy, and at the time of Christ's coming, and we'll have to explain this, we anticipate it, but we'll have to explain it as we go along, when they will truly be converted and look on him whom they have perished and mourn for him as for an only son, when many of the Jews are saved at the coming of Christ, how much more their fullness, if the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, then their fullness will have no comparison to their diminishing. For I speak to you Gentiles, Paul says, inasmuch as I am an apostle. I am the apostle, he says, of the Gentiles. I magnify mine office. Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, and I'm speaking to you Gentiles. If by any means, verse 14, I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. If by me speaking to you Gentiles and telling you how freely salvation has come to you through the fall of the Jews, I might provoke them of my flesh, of the Israelites, of the Jews, to emulation, to cause them to act. You see, that's what he's trying to do. The biggest job of the preacher is not the worldly element in the church, but it's to provoke God's people, to cause them to to be stirred up, to, to realize where we stand in the things of God. In other words, how privileged and blessed we are. Paul says he's going to show these Jews just how much they have fallen from, and because the Gentiles are now being saved, he says, I may provoke them to emulation, those that are of my flesh and might save some of them. Some of them may be so affected that they would turn and be saved. That was Paul's purpose. He says in verse 15, For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, of the Gentile world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? He says, if if we can consider the casting away of them, opening up the way of salvation to the whole world, to the Gentiles, and salvation for the whole world, well then, on the contrary, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And that's what he anticipates when Christ comes again. For if the first fruit be holy, that's the Jew, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. The Jews, from the very first, their whole system, root system, from root to branches, was holy. And he says, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, the Gentiles are like the wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. The Gentiles are partakers of salvation because salvation is of the Jews, Jesus said, didn't he? And so the Jews were broken off even though they were holy. They were broken off. And we as a wild olive branch, we've been grafted in. And we're a partaker of the root and of the fatness of the olive tree. And it tells, here's the warning to the Gentiles, verse 18, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. We have no reason to brag. We have no reason to think that we're so privileged. Remember that salvation came from the Jews to begin with. And it says, Thou wilt say then, The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true. Well, 
because of unbelief they were broken off. Look at it, verse 20. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, if he broke off the Jews because of their unbelief, take heed lest he also spare not thee, that the Gentiles might be cut off as well. Now, we're not talking here in terms of individual personal salvation. We're talking about the Jews as a nation and as a people opening up the way of salvation to the Gentiles and that we are actually a partaker of salvation through the fact that the Jewish people were the ones that salvation began with for Jesus came and he was the Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. But he says salvation is of the Jews, didn't he? And so we are, in a sense... The wild olive branch grafted in to that which is holy and receiving our uh, life even from that which is the root and the uh, stump that is holy. And if God broke off those natural branches because of unbelief, the Jewish people, let us fear, let's take heed that he spare not thee. Verse 21. You and I ought to be thankful every day that God is in has included us, we who are Gentiles and far off, he's made nigh by the blood of Christ. And he's brought us in to the uh, place where we can receive salvation by grace through faith. 